We are in our last week of Nehemiah. So we're going to finish up this book. It's been a great few months going through it together. So we're going to finish it up today. So Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 43. Here is God's word to his people. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storehouses, the contributions, the fresh fruits, the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God in the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. All of Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave their daily portions for the singers the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it, was, and it was found written in the book of the law that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as they heard the law, they separated from all of Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elijah the priest, who was appointed over the store chambers of the house of God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a lower chamber where they previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which was commanded to the Levites and the singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elijah had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the temple and brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites have not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tide of the grain and wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurer of the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zodok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God for his service. In the days 
In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grind and loading them on donkeys, and also wine and grapes and figs and all kind of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. The Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did you not, did not our fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors to be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate, that no load might be brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and the sellers, all kinds of uh, um, wages lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why did you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. For that, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also, my favor, O God. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Man, am I a tough guy. (laughs) And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for for your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not King Solomon, did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him over all, made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, porn and women made him even sin. Shall we not listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jorahada, the son of Elijah, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samballot, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they had desecrated the priesthood the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, your word is truth. Your word is life-giving. Your word brings encouragement. It strikes us. It brings conviction. It rebukes us. It, it, it ministers to us in, in the places where we need to be ministered to. And so I pray you give us our ears and hearts to humble ourselves before your word. That your spirit, Lord, your Holy Spirit, who lives in all of us who are believers, that he would take what is said this morning and apply it to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah went up to the king. He left Jerusalem. We don't know when he actually left. We don't know how long he was gone. 
But we know it did take him 55 days to travel to meet the king, and it would take him another 55 days to return to Jerusalem. So he was at least gone for at least 110 days. So in his absence, when he was left Jerusalem, what was going to take place when he left? Were the people still going to be faithful to all the things they said they were going to do in chapter 10? Things we talked about last week. And when he returned, when Nehemiah made that long journey back to Jerusalem, what would he actually find there? What, what was he going to see when he came back? Because we know during his time there, God did great things through Nehemiah. Didn't he? We've been in this book of Nehemiah for a long time. And we saw God do awesome things through him. The wall was restored. We saw worship. We saw the people being brought together. And we also saw last week the people take oaths of faithfulness to God. Nehemiah was there when they did that. He was there in chapter 10 when they said we're going to be faithful to the covenant relationship. You remember the pledges they made? What did they say? We pledge to be faithful to God's word, right? They pledged to be faithful to the Sabbath. They pledged to be faithful to support God's house. And they pledge to be faithful and not intermarrying with people of the lands. We're going to do these things, Lord. We promise. They took oaths. They took an oath to do it. You see, the people's desire, what we saw last week, the desire to be faithful to God. Every believer should have that desire. Because it's an overflow to what God is doing in our hearts. It's an overflow. It's a response to what he's done for us. It's an overflow of a heart, as I said last week, that has been shaped by God. And Nehemiah himself witnessed this overflow in the lives of these Jews. He was there in these verses. He was there. He was there when seeing them actually live out their faith. Seeing them being obedient to the covenant relationship. Before he went to see the king, the people were doing well, basically, before he left. They were doing the things they said they were going to do. And this is what we see in the first parts of the last part of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. We see moments of faithfulness from the people. The first thing we see is they were faithful to worship. These verses, in the context of these verses here, verse, verse 12, verse 43 of chapter 12 and verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13, they're in the context of the dedication of the wall. Because as we know, the wall was already built. But they have not dedicated it yet. But here in chapter 12, the, the, the whole congregation has assembled again together as one body, one person for this dedication. The word says they, they celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing. It was worship taking place in Jerusalem. It was a time to acknowledge and praise God for being Jehovah Jireh. Right? Because they know that it was through God's work and, and help in hand that they were able to accomplish what they did with the wall. That they just didn't do it themselves. They had all, remember, they had all these things against them to help, to prevent them from doing the work. Internal stuff, external stuff. But yet, the Lord made a way. And the work got done. In spite of them. And this time and this service here is them acknowledging God as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. 
Look at what you're doing for us. Look at what you're doing on your people. Thank you for blessing our efforts. And then chapter 12, verse 43 says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice. The women and the children also rejoiced. The joy, <laughs> the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's going to be awkward when they listen to that on tape. <laughs> the people were enjoying the covenant relationship with God. I think that's what we see in these last parts of chapter 12. They were enjoying God. They were communing with him and fellowship with him and resting in him. The joy of Jerusalem was heard all around because of what the Lord has done in them. So they were faithful in worship. Secondly, they were faithful to God's house. Nehemiah witnessed the people being faithful, doing the things they said they were going to do. On that day, men were appointed over the storehouses, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes. Remember in chapter 10, the people said, we were going to give these things to God's temple, right? You remember that? We're going to give our tithes. We're going to support the priests and the gatekeepers and the Levites. And here in chapter 12, we see they did that because there are people over these things, watching over the tithes and gifts and making sure the Levites and the singers got their portion of those gifts. So Nehemiah's witnessed this. He saw the people supporting God's temple, supporting the house of God giving out of their abundance in tithes and offerings. Verse 44 says, For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They rejoiced over their leaders and supporting their leaders and supplying their, their, their needs. So they found joy in it. It was not considered a burden. They found joy in it. Thirdly, they were faithful to God's word. Nehemiah witnessed this before he left. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, it says, On that day they read from the book of the law of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So they listened to the word being preached and read to them. And the word said, this shouldn't happen. And the people applied it to their lives. They just didn't hear and let it go out of one ear. They said, well, the word says this, so we're going to apply it. So they separated from themselves all those of foreign descent. The point here is that the people were striving to let God's word be at the center. And let it order their steps. These verses here, chapter 12, verse 43, all the way to chapter, chapter 13, shows us that Israel had moments. Moments when they were faithful. It's the things they said they were going to do in chapter 10. And, and what if the book of Nehemiah ended right here? What if that was the last thing that Nehemiah did? We would be like, man, that was a good ending. Nehemiah was a success. He turned the people around. But we know the book doesn't end there. We still got the rest of chapter 13. And I, and I love the fact that it doesn't end there because it doesn't give us the picture that Israel was going to be 100% faithful to all the things they said they were going to do. Because we got the rest of chapter 13. So in his absence, when Nehemiah left, all these things were going on. Supported the temple. Prayed worship. Providing for the priests. Listening to God's word, reading God's word. These things were taking place. Then in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, he's left to go back to the king. Then after some time, 
he asks leave to go back to Jerusalem. And the questions are, what is he going to find? What is he going to see taking place when he got when he arrives back in Jerusalem? We know when he first came to Jerusalem, he saw all kind of stuff. And you would think all these things he did, all the reforms he did, you would think he would, when he came back for the second time, he, those things would still be taking place. Will they? Will think will those things still be taking place? We'll see. All believers suffer with what I call CCC. Well, you say CCC. Well, what do you mean by that, Alex? Be patient. I'm gonna tell you. CCC stands for Cotton Candy Commitments. Cotton Candy Commitments. And cotton candy commitments are usually those commitments you make at youth camp or the Christians, a Christian conference or some workshop where you're in this Christian environment that only lasts for a couple of days and you're all emotionally involved and then you make all these commitments. For example, when I was in college, I was involved with a campus ministry and every year in December we always had a Christmas conference in Orlando, Florida. And my last, in my last one there, and at this conference, you got praise and worship. You have these talks all week. You bring in all these different speakers. And you have all these college kids from all these different campuses in the South, but also stage or the Southern, you know, some schools in Atlanta. And so at, at each campus breaks up toward the end of the week to have share time, to reflect about the week. And in our share time, this, this, this young lady that I went to school with, she just burst out in tears. I mean, she was just crying, crying. And then she said... God is he's calling me to be a, a missionary. I'm going to be a missionary. It felt good at the time. That commitment. But she's not a missionary today. But at the time she said that, it felt right. It felt like a, a good commitment. But it was just cotton candy. And what the thing about cotton candy is where it smells and tastes good. But how long does it really last when you put it in your mouth? Not very long. Do it taste good? It smells good at the fair, but it's gone just like that. It dissolves very quickly. Similarly to that is our faithfulness to God. It's cotton candy faithfulness. Eventually it does dissolve into unfaithfulness. It does. It does. And we all know that's true. But we all live on the illusion. We all live on the illusion that one day my faithfulness is going to be more than just cotton candy. And I'm telling you, it ain't ever going to be more than that. Even the things that overflow from your heart, even the times when, you, when, when God is producing all these things in you, you still can fall. No one is above falling. No one. Okay, how long have you been a Christian? Everyone can fall. It's just cotton candy. It doesn't matter how many books you read, how many sermons you listen to, how many conferences you go to, or how many Bible studies you go to, that ain't going to change. It's always going to be cotton candy. Always. And when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, that's what he saw. That faithfulness had dissolved, man. Gone to unfaithfulness. All the things they said they were going to do, they were no longer doing when he got back. They had dissolved into unfaithfulness. And the first thing we see is that the faithful support of God's house had 
dissolved. You know, in chapter 10, verse 39, the people took their oath to God and said, we will not neglect your house, God. We're going to support it. And for a period of time, they did. For a period of time, they did. But when Nehemiah got back, he saw that the people's faithfulness and that had dissolved into unfaithfulness. The people and their leaders. And the first thing he discovered was the priest, Elijah, what he had did, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, had been unfaithful in his responsibility. He had been unfaithful. How is that? He actually allowed Tobiah, an enemy, one who, who tried to stop the work, to move into the temple of the God, into God's house. So he moved into a place where they kept the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tiles of the ground and wine and oil. He was living in that chamber in the temple of God. And if you know anything about Israelite Old Testament, only certain people were allowed in the temple. Definitely not an enemy of God was allowed inside the temple. But here... You have Tobiah, an Ammonite, living in God's house. He has set up shop like a little critter in God's temple. And Nehemiah's response, he was angry, a righteous anger. He, he says, I threw out all of Tobiah's furniture. And then he made reforms in, 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 in how they took care of the temple. He cleansed the chambers and they brought back the vessels to, of the house of God, all the grain offerings and the frankincense. He did all this stuff to try to bring reform to it. You see, he calls out what this priest did because it was evil. He held him accountable, basically. And there is accountability in the church, in, our Christ, in the Christian life. And, and don't confuse accountability with people being judgmental. Some people do that. Don't judge me. There's a difference between accountability and judging. And people who don't want to be held accountable will always, call, will always say you're judging them. Stop judging me. People who don't want to be held accountable will always say you're judging them. But if you love a brother and sister, you will keep them accountable and you will be able to receive accountability. We all are held accountable. None of us are beyond falling. If Nehemiah didn't really care about these people, he wouldn't have did the things he's doing here in chapter 13, call them out for the things that they're doing wrong. Because he could have just said, oh, you letting Tobiah live there? Sweet. Let's just have a party. But because he loved them, cared about the people, he called them out for their sin. You can call people out without judging them. Accountability is a good thing, and it's always done in love and with an awareness of one's own brokenness. Accountability is a good thing, and it's always done in love with an awareness of your own brokenness. And if you have that attitude, you won't come off as an arrogant jerk. You come in with humility. I'm broken too, brother. I'm broken too. If my life starts to dissolve into into depths of into a great depths of unfaithfulness, I need brothers who love me, who be willing to call me out on it. Because if you don't call me out on it, you don't really love me. Cut me because you love me. You see, 
There's a Christian love is different. It keeps, it's, there's accountability there. If you love me, then you hold me accountable, and I'll do the same for you. I'll pull you to the side and say, brother, this is what I see. This is what I see. And you have the freedom to do the same for me because I need it. So Nehemiah held the high priest accountable for falling short on his job. And the next thing that takes place with the temple is that the temple servants were forsaken. They didn't get their portions because the people weren't bringing them anymore. And because of that, the, temple, all the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, they all had to leave and go to their own field. Because the folks were not bringing the grind and all the things to the temple. Because if they didn't bring that stuff, the temple servants didn't eat. So they fled the temple. And so the temple was not being taken care of. If they fled the temple, guess what? Worship was not taking place. If the temple servants fled the temple. There's no singers, no gatekeepers. So the house of God was forsaken. You can't do that. The leaders were not there. They were all in the field, tending to their field so they could provide for themselves. Nehemiah says in verse 10, I found out that the portions of the Levites have not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. And so you know if they're not in the temple, certain things are not taking place. Certain things are not getting done. And once again, Nehemiah dealt with this unfaithfulness. He confronted those who were responsible for oversight of this, the officials. Called them out on it. Confronting them. Not in a condescending way, but again, holding them accountable for lack of their leadership. Just like he did with the priests. And then he puts reforms in place. He gathered the officials together, gathered the leaders together, placed them in their station. And then he made sure all of Judah brought in their gifts, their tithes, into the storehouse. And then the third thing he did was he appointed reliable leaders over the storehouses. Men who had a good character. You know, if someone's reliable, what they're dependable and trustworthy. That's what he did. Men who are dependable and trustworthy, he placed over the storehouses. And he gave them clear responsibility. Your responsibility is to make sure your brothers get their portion from their tithes and offerings. You make sure they get it and you give it to them. Be faithful there. Be good stewards there. And even though he made these reforms, Nehemiah has to know that still was not a guarantee that if he left again and came back, things would not have dissolved again. He had to know that. And in the prayer that he prays here communicates that. What does he say? Remember me, oh my God, according to this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God, for his service. That's what that prayer communicates. He knows. He knows that if the Lord doesn't preserve it, it's going to dissolve into unfaithfulness again. Don't wipe it out, Lord. Don't wipe out these reforms, Father. Keep them going for your glory, for your house, for your kingdom. Let it stand, Father. Let your hands be over it. So God's house was forsaken. Next, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was forsaken. Remember in verse chapter 10, what the people say, Lord, Lord, when the people of the lands bring goods and any grind on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy them. This is what they said in chapter 10. When they come, we are not going to buy 
And then here in chapter 13, what are they doing? They're buying as much as they can and with no conviction. You got to understand that, that the bigger problem here is that people are doing these things with no conviction. Living in it with no signs of conviction for the things that they're doing. There was no conviction. Then Nehemiah came, called them out on it. Hey, brother, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Don't, don't, don't you remember what, what, what our forefathers did? How they profaned the Sabbath and, and what happened because of that? Don't you remember all the things we talked about in chapter 9? <laughs> and here you are. Doing it, doing it again. Doing the same things they did. And we know why they're doing it because they're no different than their forefathers. And we are no different either. The people were doing what they made an oath not to do. And again, he confronted those. He confronted the nobles of Judah, held them accountable, and then he made more reforms. This, this time the reforms were um, he closed the gates on the, the night before the Sabbath. He, he put his servants in charge of the gates to make sure no one got into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And then he dealt with the merchants. He was strong with him. He said, if you come out here again, I'm going to lay my hands on you. Now, I'm not a violent person, but that's Nehemiah's approach. And then eventually, well, they got it. They didn't come back on the Sabbath day. What, what, what does that communicate? Don't compromise on your standards and your beliefs. Stand firm. Don't compromise to the world. Don't give in to what the world says. Stand firm on what you believe the Bible teaches and this is what that communicates. That whole city, I believe, communicates that. We don't respond. The world does not dictate how we live. God's word does. All the time. Well, can you give me a better example? I'll give you a clear example. Politics don't shape my view of God. My view of God shapes my politics. And that's what I mean. There's a difference. This stands above anything in the world. This shapes the way I view life. It shapes the way I view people. It shapes the way I view government. It shapes the way I view politics. It shapes the way I view everything. 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 And what gets us into trouble is when this is no longer shaping us. Y'all have heard me say this before. None of this is new stuff, but we always forget it, just like they forgot it. And part of my job as pastor is to keep reminding you of the things that you're going to forget when you leave here today. This shapes us not the world and what the world values. Fourthly, he dealt with the Levites who were responsible. Some of the Levites were the gatekeepers and they fell on their job. And so he said, you need to purify yourself and get up to the gates and guard the gates and honor the Sabbath and stop letting people in. This is basically what he tells them. Purify yourselves and guard the gates. And then he closes again in another prayer. Remember this too also, my God, in my favor. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I love that prayer. Because I think Nehemiah knows that even in himself, he don't really keep the Sabbath like he should. So why would he pray, Lord, spare me according to your great steadfast love? Because he knows. He's just like them. And so he's praised, Lord, in your faithfulness, spare me, spare your people because of our unfaithfulness. 
Let us be convicted. Let us um, go to repentance when we fall short. So there's two things they were unfaithful in. The Sabbath keeping, the house of God was forsaken. And then thirdly, the problem in a marriage. As we know, chapter 13, chapter 10, verse 30, the people made an oath to God. We would not give our daughters to the people of the land. And we would not take their daughters for our sons. They, we're not going to do it. But as we know, that was cotton candy too. Because they're doing it now. Doing it in a marriage again. They have fallen back into it again. And you may ask yourself, what's the problem with the marriage? What's wrong with it? The people, the kids were not speaking the language of Judah. And more than that, these folks had worshipped other gods. And so they were going to lose their religious identity. That's the problem. That's what Nehemiah was concerned about. Because if you know what King Solomon, King Solomon started out well. And then he started marrying all these women. He started worshipping the gods of his many wives. That's what the problem was. Christians don't marry folks from other religions. There's no, I mean, there's no compromise there. There's no need in debating that. We cannot be unequally yoked. And that's in the Bible. You ain't got to go to theology or go to the concordance for that. Christians don't marry folks from other religions. Christians don't marry non-believers either. That's clear in Scripture. I don't care what denomination you go to or what church you go to. That's the standard. And we don't compromise on that. Because one God is going to have a say in, in, in those marriages. And what was happening here it was the gods of the nations that were having a say. The gods of the children or the, the mother God was having a say. And it was, it was killing their religious identity as the people of God. They were losing it. And Nehemiah did not want that to happen. And so he confronted them. He said he cursed them, pulled out their hair. Now, I'm not going to do any of those things. But Nehemiah did. So, <laughs> But nonetheless, the point is, Christians marry Christians. That's the point. Christians marry Christians. So in all the things that the people took oath in that could not keep, their faithfulness eventually dissolved into unfaithfulness. It was cotton candy. It was here one moment, gone the next. And when you reflect on all these reforms that Nehemiah made, you know, what comes to your mind when you, when you look at all the things he just did here? See, the book here, the book ends with, with him correcting the people. And this should communicate something to us this morning. We have to accept the fact that your faithfulness to God, man, it's cotton candy. And at any moment, it can dissolve into unfaithfulness. And, you know, you say, aren't we to bear fruit? Yes. We are to bear fruit as Christians, but it's fruit that is produced in us through the Holy Spirit. You're not producing the fruit. We think we are because of the good works we do. It's produced in you. You do the good works because of what's been done in you. That's the difference. It's produced in you. One commentator says, the church can take nothing for granted. The church can take nothing for granted. It is never reformed once for all. Because like the reformers of the 16th century knew well, always needing to be reformed. 
listen to that. The church always needing to be reformed. We never reform once for all as the people of God. We always need reform. We always need it for the rest of our life. And when you become a Christian for the first time, the rest of your life is going to be spent with God reforming you, molding you into his image. You know, don't think just because I give my life to Christ, all of a sudden, man, it's going to be good. It's going to be no struggles no more. All these things that's going to quickly change. It doesn't work that way. It's a lifetime where you've been changed and reformed in the image of Christ. And this is what Nehemiah 13 shows us. We're never going to get to a place where we have arrived. As a church, as Christians, as parents, as spouses, you're never going to get to that place where you don't need mercy, where you don't need that cat grace. You got to rest in his arms. Stop fighting to get out. Accept the fact that, you know, we have freedom to struggle. That's something that a friend told me when I was in college, when I was going through my battle with depression and, and, and just, just struggling to believe I was a Christian because I was fighting to be free. And he told me, you have freedom to struggle, Alex. Freedom to struggle, freedom to fall short, freedom to mess up. But we, the, the enemy of that is the illusion that one day, if I continue to work hard enough, I'm going to actually be free from the struggle. And that's where a lot of us live our Christian life, trying to be free because we don't want to struggle no more. But what we don't realize is that on this side of glory, you will. I don't care what the health and wealth gospel says. Prosperity gospel says some of us are going to struggle. Some of us are going to be poor. Some of us are going to get sick. Some of us are going to get diseases and die. I mean, that's just reality. That's just reality. And it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Just the fact we live in a broken world, people. We live in a broken world. So, lost my train of thought. That's the reality of the Christian life, the cycle. What we read about in chapter 9 with the people of Israel and their forefathers, the up and down cycle, is still in place. Accept that. Amy Carmichael says, in acceptance lies peace. In acceptance lies peace. When you accept that this is the Christian life, you can have peace here and you can have peace in the valley because you know that's just the way it is. We want it all to be up here. It ain't ever going to be up here all the time. You have moments when it's up here. Then you have moments when it's down here. <coughs> In acceptance lies peace. I'm reading a book right now called uh, First Things First. Yes, it is a self-help book. But it's you know, got some good illustrations in it. So I'm going to steal one today. So when I, as I was reading this week, I came across a description that, that sometimes that, that is a good picture of the Christian life for many of us. One of the authors in the book has a friend who is a psychologist, and, and this psychologist and his professional peers, they sometimes work with rats and mazes. The author said they would put a rat at one end of the maze and a piece of food at the other end. 
and they will watch as the rat bump around until he eventually finds the food. The next time they put him in, he bumps a little, he bumps a little less. He get the food a little faster. And after a while, he, he got to, he, he, he got where he would just zip through the maze and get the food real quick. And then they took the food away. And for a while, each time, he'd keep going to making a beeline for the end of the maze. But it wasn't too long before he figured out the food wasn't going to be there, and so he stopped. And the psychologist says, this is the difference between rats and people. The rats stop. You do not realize, when you became a Christian, Jesus took away your sin, he took away your concept of self-righteousness, and gave you his. But some of us are like that rat, still trying to run to our own. Still trying to get our own. I'm telling you, it ain't there no more. You don't have to work for your own righteousness. You don't have to continue to live in sin. He set you free. But we run through the maze of life trying to get something that's not there. It's gone. Be a Christian through his righteousness. Stop trying to earn and trying to attain your own sense of self-righteousness because it's not there. We know that. We know what these people don't know. Something I said last week, we have to finish the story. Christ has given you all that you need. Chapter 13 here ends with Nehemiah confronting the high priest because his son had intermarried with Samballot's daughter. And when I read that, I was wondering, why did he put that that way? Why, why did he end the book talking about how the priesthood has been desecrated. Why? They desecrate the priesthood. The covenant of the priesthood and the Levites have been desecrated because of this intermarriage. I realize that, you know, as we saw a couple of chapters back, we talked about how the office of king and the office of prophet was broken. He ends the book now with the office of priest broken. That pushes us forward. It pushes us forward to the fact that we still need a greater priest, basically. A greater priest. Someone who will not falter. Someone who will not fall down on the job. A priest who is perfect. A priest who who doesn't fall short. A priest who is not sinful. And we all know that it's Jesus. A priest who does not have to make sacrifices for his own sin because he is sinless. And if you know, if you read the book of Hebrews, you know that that high priest is Jesus. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. And he fulfills all those offices. And he gives you his righteousness. He takes your sin as your priest. He died for it. He takes it. And he gives you his righteousness. You got to learn to rest there. Sleep there. Drink of it. Bathe in it. Whatever you need to do to wrap your mind around that. And then you can stop running through the maze of life trying to earn what you already got. What you already got. As his people, as his bride, as his beloved, 
you have all of his attention, all of his affection, all of his love. So you can stop eating the cotton candy of your own faithfulness. And just accept his, that he has given you his righteousness and his love. Let us pray. Father God, I, I pray that you'll help me stop running. Trying to find my sense of righteousness and the role, my role as a pastor, the things I do as a pastor. Help me to not try to find my identity and who I am and the things that I do for you. But Lord, help me to embrace, help all of us to embrace and rest in what we have in Christ because of his life, his death, his resurrection. That we are righteous in your sight. That even the things we do, even the faithfulness that we do show, Lord, we don't last forever. Because, Lord, we still struggle with sin. And it's okay, Father. The question is, Lord, are we convicted when we fall? That should be the question we have when we struggle, when our struggles with sin. Am I convicted? Or do I find no conviction when I fall or live in sin? Convict us, Father. And allow us to hold one another accountable in love with awareness of our own brokenness. I know, Father, that you, you love your church. You die for your church. And I pray your blessings over your people this morning. I pray for those, Lord, who may be here who don't know you. I pray that your spirit will be working in their hearts. That they will see the need for a Savior. That Jesus, Lord, is there for them. Bring them into your kingdom. Allow them to receive Christ, Lord. I pray for those who, who are struggling to believe the gospel. Help them to know, Lord, that there's grace and forgiveness. And Lord, help them to repent. Help them to rest. And Lord, be with us this week. Be with our families. Be with our kids. And thank you so much for all your blessings. In Christ's name I pray.